And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's readings. The first comes to us from the Book of Ibis. A storyteller does not concern themselves with the truth. Stories are truer than the truth. The second comes to us from the Book of Sweeney. This is gallows ground you're walking, and there's a rope around your neck and a raven bird on each shoulder waiting for your eyes. The gallows tree has deep roots that stretches from heaven all the way down to hell. And this world is the only branch from which the rope is swinging. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods Season 2, Episode 7, The Treasure of the Sun. So what did you think? I think this episode is Emmy bait. Uh, Pablo Schreiber has the best chance of winning uh, an actor award this season, I think. Uh, and it's thanks to this episode and like his amazing performance. Uh, for me, this ranks up there with like Get Gone and A Prayer for Mad Sweeney from season one. And it's one of my favorite all-time episodes. Um, and it's definitely the best one of this season so far. What did you think? I definitely agree. This is my favorite episode of season two. I think it's a little hard to get everything in just one viewing since there's so much there and a lot of it is uh, really symbolic, which hurts my strangely literal brain. Um, (laughs) But it really works on an intuitive level, even if you don't catch all of the details. Um, And it is, I think, a great way to send off a great character and a great actor. This is the editor version of Alan cutting in to say that Because of problems that we had with our screeners, we accidentally gave the wrong production credits for this episode, and I wanted to make sure that the right people got credit for their work. This episode was written by Heather Belson, who also wrote Season 2, Episode 3, Munin. Or is that Munin? Anyway, uh, she's also written on The Walking Dead and Black Sails. This episode was directed by Paco Cabezas, who has directed on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, Into the Badlands, and Penny Dreadful. Now back to your regular podcast. Let's recap what happened this week. Shadow finds Mad Sweeney under a bridge in Cairo and brings him back to Ibis's mortuary. Bilquis leads a sermon in the chapel and tells Sweeney that she can adapt to any situation, then offers to take his confession. He remembers a cursed prophecy of his death being caused by a dead woman's bobble and something deeper, but he is too afraid to face it. Meanwhile, Mr. Wednesday repairs his spear with a cutting from Yggdrasil and dedicates every death it causes to his power. Later, Ibis offers to write Sweeney's story, and Sweeney remembers living in the wilderness, being a king, and being a god-king. Sweeney realizes that he has to face Wednesday and stop the war by killing him. That evening, he confronts Odin at dinner, and Shadow fights Sweeney. Shadow stabs Sweeney with the spear, and Sweeney pulls it into the Horde of the Sun, then dies. Okay, so obviously the most important thing that happens in this episode is Sweeney's story. Bilquist. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, Sweeney. Yeah, Sweeney's story. (laughs) Totally. 
And so it's interesting when I first started writing my notes for this episode, I was like, oh, this is clearly a three beat. And then I was writing as I was like going back through slowly and taking notes. I was like, no, wait, is this a five beat? I (laughs) what's happening? It's like, um, so I thought I would start by just going through them. So the first beat in the story is when he's talking to Bilquis. There was a girl. I remember that much. She had the sight, and she let me play with her boobies under the stars, and she told me my fortune. Told me I'd be undone and abandoned west of the sunrise and that a dead woman's bobble would seal my fate. And I laughed and I poured more barley wine and played with her boobies some more. And I kissed her full on her pretty breasts. Those were the last of the good days. The grey monks were changing our stories, making us fair folk into greedy little green men, which is all fucking bollocks. I used to be. So that's version one. The second beat is when he's just sitting by himself on the back porch with the beer. Um, And that's when he's the madman living in the woods with kind of like unclear memories and his wife and his daughter come to visit him and they tell him. We lost the dress, husband. We lost the castle. Your lands, your title, your people. We lost the war. You abandoned our allies on the field. And so Bishop Roman laid a curse on you. Um, and then would I consider like the third beat that happens very soon after, you could consider it maybe part of the same story is when Salim joins him on the back porch. And then when he's talking to Salim, he tells the version of the story um, where he's actually the king talking to his pregnant wife, um, deciding what to do about the gray monks whose influence is rising. Uh, And Sweeney decides that he's just gonna tell them to leave and he kills a priest. And so that's why the bishop curses him with madness and to die by the spear. And then as the battle breaks out, he hears the banshees crying and flees. So the ending of those stories are kind of different, um, whether like he abandoned the gray monks as his allies or whether he was actually fighting them as his enemies. But either way, he fled on the fields and his wife is involved. So they're, they're like pretty closely related stories Mm -hmm. and then arguably either the third beat or the fourth and fifth depending on how you're counting um is when (laughs) he's talking to ibis in like the first version of the story he's a great warrior god fighting off the other gods coming into ireland um until the church finally succeeds in getting established and it turns them into saints and fairies And then the second version of the story... The story I'm writing is about love of the Tuatha Dé Danann, the ancient race of gods in old Ireland. You weren't small. I was a king. You were a god king. You were god of the sun, 
of luck, of craft, art, of everything valuable to civilization. The Shining One, they call you. You saved your people from their old enemy, the Fomorians. Lerbata, they call you. Long hand for your skill with your spear. Whether two Adedanen were scientists and artists, the Fomorians were madmen, monstrous beings that came from under the sea, under the ground, under the surface of things. Nightmares. The madness, it came from him. Your father's father, one-eyed Balor of the Fomorians. I don't want to remember this story. And he kills his grandfather who tried to kill him on the battlefields, but then the head turns into Wednesday's head. And that's kind of when he has his realization that he has to confront Wednesday. What I think is interesting, and you laid that out so beautifully, what I think is really interesting about it when you lay it out like that is that I think you can clearly see that it goes in backward chronological order. Yeah. Yeah. It starts with the most recent memory that he has, which is the prophecy, and then it moves backwards more and more until you get into like a mythic age finally. Once he hits that point, then it all comes back to the present. It's like a big circle. There's a really interesting contrast between one of the past stories and then the current moment in the episode. So when he's talking to Salim, he abandons the battlefields because he's afraid that he's going to die and he flees. And in the current moment, he's deciding that he needs to go to battle but it's because he actually doesn't want to kill Laura. Or at least I see that as like the thing that kind of sets him on this path Mm. of introspection um, is basically that Wednesday wants him to finish the job that he started and get rid of Laura, and he doesn't want to do that. No, I think you're right. Do you think he's more worried about saving her or that he just wants to be his own man again? I think it's not necessarily that he super cares whether she lives or dies. I don't think he would necessarily go out on a huge limb to save her, but I think he can't be the one to kill her. Like, he Mm -hmm. carries too much guilt from the first time around. And he cares about her now. I don't know. I think there's something particularly despicable about doing murder because you've been ordered to, rather than because you, like want to kill someone in battle or really pissed at them or like getting revenge there's something like dishonorable about unmotivated unpersonal murder absolutely yeah assassination is like a special kind of cold-blooded evil yeah and it's like the opposite of kind of everything that his character believes in and stands for right he's like the hot-headed does what his heart tells him to kind of guy Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's been, like, ignoring his gut for so long because Wednesday's making him, and he just, like, he's tired of it. So, yeah, like, part of it is not wanting to kill Laura, but also I think part of not wanting to kill Laura is, like, yeah, symbolically standing up for himself and wanting to take some fucking agency in his life. 
when Sweeney was first talking to Shadow and said, you know, like, when the time comes, don't get in the fucking way, my first time through the episode, I assumed he was talking about the final battle with the new gods and saying basically, like, save yourself, flee on the battlefield, uh, like, don't don't die on Wednesday's behalf. But of course, in the context of the episode, it becomes clear that he's actually talking about not getting in the way of Sweeney trying to kill Wednesday. I hadn't thought of that. And now that whole scene makes a little bit more sense to me in terms of how uh, Shadow is reacting because Shadow is interpreting it the same way that you are. Yeah. Whereas when I saw it, I was like, Shadow, he is straight up telling you that he's going to kill your boss. And you're just (laughs) sitting there like doing nothing. Like, give me my coin back. Give it back, man. Give it back. Which, speaking of that scene, I love that moment. And again, the first time through, I didn't really appreciate it as a Chekhov moment. Oh, what do you mean? That's interesting. What do you mean? Chekhov's shotgun, right? Is that like, if there's a shotgun sitting over the mantle. Oh. <laughs> I think it, it's just Chekhov's gun. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm from Texas. It's a shotgun. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Chekhov's gun. If there's a gun over the mantelpiece in chapter one, it has to go off by the last chapter in order to like really appreciate Sweeney's trick at the end where he puts Gungnir in the horde, um, essentially like destroying it in the only way that you can really destroy a weapon like that because it can't be destroyed, it can only be disappeared. The the coin trick with Shadow in his room is like really foreshadowing that. It also like subtly changes the rules, right? Because we've only ever seen him take stuff out of there and never put stuff in. Uh, except for he transported Laura there to get to the train that That's one time. That's true to move through space and time, I guess. I yeah. mean, I guess women aren't objects, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're right. And you know, as soon as that spear disappears, exactly what he did. And yeah. I think it would have been really confusing without this moment. Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, like, I totally understand the lines of conflict between Sweeney and Wednesday, and I get why that makes sense as a move to Sweeney, because it's the biggest middle finger that he can give Wednesday. I mean, and then he gives him the literal middle fingers as well. <laughs> the um, double guns, yeah. Yeah. But I just wonder, like, does Sweeney care that his actions are actually helping the new gods at all? Or do you think he's mm. not even thinking that far ahead? I think that... um Sweeney thinks that Wednesday needs to be stopped. Mm. Like if Wednesday gets taken out in the war, that's all to the good. I see. Because like he's a problem. He just wants to take away Odin's power. And considering, you know, the blessing that Wednesday lays down on the spear. That was basically. Yeah. He took away like all of his ability to kind of charge up. I mean, ironically, though, the spear did kill one person. So his own death actually did charge Mm -hmm. Wednesday a Mm -hmm. little bit. But it was worth it to keep him from being able to get the power from anybody else. And ironically, it's like a kind of Christ-like act. The whole episode, he's like fighting against this like Christian conversion that's overtaking Mm. Ireland in the past. Yeah. But he he does sacrifice himself and is stabbed in the side with a spear on Easter to save, you know, everyone from the one-eyed evil God, you know, in his view. 
because he like equates him with Baylor in his mind. So Baylor was his grandfather. If you've ever heard of this story called The Lord of the Rings, there's uh, uh who's that by? Yeah. <laughs> Baylor, you could think of as Sauron, who is a giant eyeball, the the source of all evil. Baylor is adapted in Tolkien's mind into Sauron, except that his eyeball is like their secret weapon. And like, if he looks at you with his eye, then you'll die. Whoa. <laughs> like in the actual myth, Baylor's like, I mean, he's a giant in the episode, right? Like, there's that great shot of Sweeney jumping at him. And even though he's, like, jumping really high in the air, he's only eye to eye with Baylor. Yeah. As he's standing there, which is so good. But in the myth, he's, like, really enormous. Like, he's, like, the size of a church. Um, But he's so big that he can't get up. He's, like, in a giant wheelbarrow thing. And they're, like, trying to... His people are, like, trying to open his eye with, like, this weird pulley system and all these ropes and there's like dozens of men trying to open his eyes so that it will look down on the army that they're fighting and (laughs) kill everyone simultaneously and Lou sees this happening and like he's the only one that notices for some reason instead of a spear he throws this might sound familiar there's there's this kid who's not the king, but will be the king. And he sees a giant and he takes his sling and he throws a stone at it and it hits him in the head and it kills him. David and Goliath. That's what Lou does. Yeah, that's what Lou does. He hits the eyeball so hard with the stone from his sling that it knocks the eyeball out of the back of Baylor's head. Ooh. And so the eyeball looks at all of the enemy's troops and they all fall down dead. <laughs> and the, the battle is won. Whoa. Uh, I really like that they use a spear in this, though. That Like, that's the right choice. They should not have done what the myth was because this is, like, so much more on point and, like, you know, has all these layers of the spear and all that stuff. Well, and that it's, like, it gives some, a little bit of a sense of balance to Sweeney versus Wednesday because they're both, mm-hmm. like, spear specialists. So one other thing that I wanted to point out that I really appreciated was that they show Laura arriving in Cairo right before the final showdown um, between Sweeney and Wednesday. And I think what they're trying to show with that is that Sweeney's death is not just caused by bad luck uh, because she's reasonably close by and they've been like hitting us over the head with the fact that the quality of his luck depends on how close his coin is. The fact that he dies really has to do with his agency and motivations and Shadow's agency and motivations. It's all about the characters and not just about like destiny or random chance and bad luck. Yeah, because when I was watching this with Christina, uh, my wife, um, that was something that she noticed. She was like, shouldn't he be able to sense that Laura is close? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't he be getting luckier? So you're saying that this like kind of recalibrates the fight to make it a fair duel. And so that shows us something about where Shadow is and, and all of that, right? Yeah. And, you know, if he had died while she was still in New Orleans or who knows where we would have been left with the feeling of like, Oh, well, what if she had been closer? What if he had been luckier? You know, like Mm -hmm. it just, it wouldn't have felt right. I don't think. Do we think that Wednesday is going to keep trying to kill Laura now that Sweeney is gone? Or 
since his main assassin is out of the way, is he just going to give up and, and let her do her thing? Ooh, that's interesting. I have this, like feeling ever since they went into Argus and he asked Laura at one point he's like I see a golden beam of light wherever he is so from where I'm sitting it's pretty cut and dry Ooh. you uh you see one here no interesting <sighs> you know how like the djinn was trapped in a necklace that he had like I think he's gonna try and Oh. Put Laura in a bottle or something. That's what I think is going to happen. So is there anything else that you want to talk about um, for Sweeney's storyline? I guess we kind of like have talked about the symbolism and the arc and what it means, but we haven't like talked that much about sort of like the emotional impact of it or like, I don't know how attached you were to Sweeney as a character this is so much richer than the character that we get in the book. And like Pablo Schreiber is mm-hmm. like, what an amazing catch in terms of casting because they were like, Oh, we cast, uh, we cast the leprechaun, you know, in season one and he's going to be in like five or six episodes. And I'm like, how, why? <laughs> like, what's what, you know, like in terms of the book, there's Sweeney's not there. Like he has the fight with shadow in the bar and then he shows up in Cairo and dies, and that's it. That's all the Sweeney we get. I see. So you were like, okay, two episodes, bam. <laughs> yeah. It was like, okay, why is everybody excited about this guy? But he's amazing, right? And the character is so good, and the relationship between him and Laura is amazing. And so yeah, I'm interested in the fallout. I want to see how she reacts to this. Because thus far, it does seem like he's been more attached to her than she was to him, obviously, right? Because she's so fixated on Shadow. So it will be interesting to see how she reacts. Um, but yeah, it was just like, oh, it was such a gut punch, you know, like as he was dying, I was like, oh, this is such good storytelling, but I'm also like so upset. <laughs> <laughs> and they make it really clear that he's, I mean, this is it. Yeah. You know? And also I think because his death is clearly dedicated via the spear to Odin's power, there's like a very limited chance of reincarnation here. Mm, Yeah. Something that could happen here is um, Laura has a potion that's not in the book uh, because they never go to New Orleans that will bring someone back to life. Maybe that will be used and we could get Sweeney back. I don't know. Like the show is not following the book. That's true. I wouldn't hold out hope for that because this is a really damn good ending. I know. For this whole thing. It's so good. I mean, that's what fanfic is for, right? If only there were blood of someone who loved her all over the place um, (laughs) for her to use. Where could she find blood? Do you think she really believes that he loves her, though? I don't think she's clear enough to see that. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe she doesn't know that. I mean, we know that. Yeah, we know that. The audience knows that. I don't think she knows that. We'll have to see. I'm interested in the next episode in terms of like the emotional fallout of this. I hope they don't undo his death because this is pretty great. But I am sad to see Pablo Schreiber leave the show. Yeah. Um, if indeed he, he does. I'm also really curious to see what they do in the next episode because that's all we get, right? It has to like wrap everything up and set us up for season three. So and I... I like I'm not exactly sure how they're going to do that. I feel like the end of season one was more obvious because we knew that they were heading towards the house on the rock. 
but there's no mm-hmm. like obvious next step for season three the way there was for season two. Yeah, there's a place that they go to after Cairo that's like extremely important in the book and that I think a lot of book fans are really looking forward to, but I don't think they're going to go there. Mm. I think they're going to wait. Because they fucked up the Corn Palace. So. <laughs> I, I think it wouldn't make sense if they went there right now. Um, okay. I think the next episode will be about like the new gods and how they were like in emergency mode, right? They don't know that the spear is gone. Right. I think it'll be about that. It's not going to be about book stuff. Okay, so I have one more question for you about this. Mm -hmm. The way that a typical three-beat works is first you establish something, then you reinforce it, and then you subvert it at the end. And so I'm wondering, do you see like the final version of the story as a subversion of what came before? Or do you see it more as just kind of like a rich tapestry of different stories that all, you know, like... Various strands have similar themes with some stories and contrasting themes with others. And it's, yeah, like a complex web of stories. Yeah, when we sat down to record and I looked at the planning doc and I saw that you had a three beat, it like clicked for me. And I was like, oh, man, that's so brilliant. Because I think that you're right about that. And when I watched the episode, I definitely saw it as the second thing that you're saying, the like multi-layered and it's kind of about how myths and legends interact with history and like how we retell them and how they change. But I think that the reason this story is so powerful is because of that three beat structure in the background. And I do think that it's an inversion in the final story because what you get in the first two is this idea of like, invading new gods who are like encroaching in on uh, the territory of a native kind of um, system like a religious system and then what you get in the third story is actually the problem is Wednesday I see okay no that makes sense because I guess I was like getting too nitpicky into the the details of you know like were the Grey Monks the allies or were the Grey Monks the enemies? But it's really just like the Grey Monks are the problem initially. And then it's not Christianity. It's it's like Wednesday. It's like his own people. Yeah, it's this father figure, this one-eyed father figure, which is like such a smart pull and is not a part of the book. Like mm-hmm. the Lou stuff and Baylor. Like, that's not in the book. Maybe. I think there's actually multiple three beats. So there's, like, that version that includes the story with Bilquis. But I think if you ignore the initial story with Bilquis, you can construct another three beat with his solitary flashback where he abandons the battlefield. Then when he's talking to Salim and he abandons the battlefield again in slightly different circumstances. And then when he, like stays on the battlefield and triumphs with the spear. Yeah, yeah. It inverts, right. It inverts that cowardice. And and Ibis is kind of telling him like, no, you were never afraid. Mm-hmm. Like you were tilted to the battle and you were the spear point literally of the entire army. Yeah, I think that's part of why it's so powerful and why the multi-layered thing is not confusing, but feels rich mm-hmm. and feels comprehensible. Because there's like multiple 
multiple ways of interpreting the stories based on like what you emphasize and what you de-emphasize. I also think it's not a mistake that after listening to Bilquis read from the Song of Songs and that it's like Bilquis, that that's the story that involves lots of sex. <laughs> <laughs> that's her story. That's that the Song of Songs is about her. Oh, shit. That's right. I forgot that. I was like, she just likes the sexy part of the Bible because it's, you know, like <laughs> on theme. But no, it's actually about her. By the way, um, speaking of Bilquis, she's wearing a Celtic cross on her robe. I did see that. It's hard to tell what's real and what's not in this episode because I was like, is Sweeney seeing a Celtic cross? <laughs> or Because she's kind of a, a bad guy, sort of, you know, from an old God perspective, in the same way that the Grey Monks are like antagonistic to him and are associated with Christianity. I don't know. There's like a lot of richness there. It's um, There's layers for sure. Um, Bilquis tells him that she can adapt. And that's like her whole thing this season, right? They showed me how to use their tools. Now I can bring my message directly to my people. I accept my worship, my way, and I grow in power. The choice is yours. Evolve or die. She says at the house on the rock. And now she has slid into this role of preaching or something, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if she's holding an Easter uh, service or what, but it brought this theme of adaptation that I saw throughout the backstory and the current story, kind of tying them all together. Because she tells him, you know, like, I can adapt to anything. And that's what his wife was telling him in the past, too. Like, these gray oh, monks yeah. aren't as bad as you think. It's not as bad as you're making it out to be. Just work with these people. And that has been Sweeney's entire MO. I'm going to work with Wednesday because there's no one to believe in me. Like, I'm a, a serial box character. I'm a joke. Um, so, like, I got to work for this guy. And that adaptation that th has, like, stolen his dignity mm -hmm. in a big way. He's just surviving. And he's not really living or thriving in any meaningful way. But why do you think his adaptation is so detrimental to his integrity? Whereas, like, Bilquis seems to take on the Christian mantle just fine. I mean, I guess one of the books of the Bible is actually about her, so maybe that helps. <laughs> right. I think that overall the theme is like a failure to adapt equivocates into death, you know, for all of the characters. The question I think that is being posed in this episode is, is death better than mere survival or like an undignified life? And Bilquis doesn't seem to have too much of a problem with it. She's less prideful than Sweeney is, mm -hmm. maybe. You know, going along with, like, this adapting, you know, to your situation, like, there's a lot of drinking in this episode. Yes, there is. <laughs> which is kind of a stereotype of Irish people. Um, so it's something to keep in the back of your mind when, when you're watching it. But it's also something that people with mental illness will do to cope with their condition. 
uh, absent good care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Sweeney is doing here. Like he seems to be having a real hard time disambiguating like his memories and his current reality or even being able to access his memories and knowing which ones are real and which ones aren't. And so he copes with that by drinking, which is not a good adaptation. I think that plays into more of that undignified behavior. It, it's uh, insulating his inner true self. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another way that he and Laura are kind of well-matched for each other, or maybe poorly matched, I don't know, but they both are like, (laughs) in the same way that he's kind of like losing himself in alcohol and like using that as a numbing tool. You know, she was doing self-harm with the bug spray. And they both have like that really thick skin and asshole behavior to try and keep people from getting close so that they don't get hurt. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because in this episode, Laura talks to Kali, and when you worship Kali, you take on this energy that she talks about of destruction. It is not necessarily an outward-facing destruction. It is the kind of destruction that Sweeney experiences in this episode, where Kali will destroy egotistical blockages inside of your psyche to unleash your true self underneath all of that so that you can become who you really are instead of who everybody tells you you ought to be. When you want to unleash your inner potential as a worshiper of Kali, you will like meditate on that position that she adopts there. You see me here as Kalima, the nurturer. But you, that girl, perhaps, you would understand me better as Smashanarkali, the destroyer. So do we understand each other better now? A little respect is all I ask. A little help is what I can give. Do you need direction or cream, sugar? Um, And the head that you will hold will be your own head as like a symbol of your ego that you are destroying in order to access your essential self, who in this case for Sweeney is the God King Lou. Yeah. So I love how she's in this episode. I love how she's used. It's real subtle. Like, I don't think you can make that connection directly based on the information in the episode. Mm -hmm. But for me, who like, I know Kali and I know like these myths and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's very, that's great. I do like that we got to see the face of the destroyer the more foreshadowing that she is a big fucking deal and bad news, like, the more anticipation there is. I cannot wait to see her kick some ass. All of this, like, all of this adaptation stuff and, like, the lack of dignity and, and all of that made me think of, like, current political stuff. Um, like, in real life, we get a lot of advice from people like, well, you need to vote for the smart person in our party, as in like the person who has a chance of winning. Mm -hmm. And that leads to all kinds of like compromises about what people actually want. And especially it means that people who are marginalized need to be like dropped or marginalized even more. 
as as we like pick a candidate who is near enough to the center who could possibly get votes from the other side or sway people who are undecided, blah, 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 blah. And what it means is like when you pull that lever for whoever, you have this undignified feeling, this feeling of like, ugh, like I'm I'm this person is not who I would pick. It's not who I stand for. Mm-hmm. And doing the smart thing and just surviving politically is not really getting us to the place that we want to be on an individual, like internal, am I good with my conscience level when you're politically active? That's kind of like what I saw in here. Yeah, I don't know if I think that they were thinking about that explicitly when they wrote this, but I think the themes are definitely there. I think your like interpretation is totally valid. Also politically, like in terms of adaptation we get a lot of stuff in the backstory of Sweeney here about the expansion of Christianity and it got me thinking about like paganism and um, like even the term pagan the word pagan comes from a Latin word that uh, is Pagani so Pagani is like if you said New Yorkers or Los Angelinos I see. it just means that Like the people who live there. Yeah. You know, it's like countrysiders. It just means like farmers, people who don't live in towns and cities. And that's because like in the first two or three centuries of Christianity's early development, it was really an urban religion where different races of people with different cultural backgrounds would interact with each other every day those were the most likely people to adopt Christianity and especially women would adopt Christianity because it was very egalitarian. In the like first couple centuries. Yeah, in its doctrine. Before Paul started doing his stupid shit. Was that Paul? I don't know. When Christianity changes, it's because of Emperor Constantine who makes it the state religion. Like his mother and wife are both Christians and they convert him to Christianity. And then he says, the entire Roman Empire is now Christian. And Christian Christianity and, and imperialism become inextricably wedded after that. Like the expansion of the Roman Empire is the expansion of Christianity at that point. Yeah, but I guess like, isn't there, there's that one part of the Bible where they're like, and women should shut up and never talk in church. And it was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's definitely Paul. Or it's like supposedly written by Paul, but maybe not actually written by Paul. Like it could have been doctored after the fact. But the whole point being that like, it was a very progressive um, movement that was based in cities and that the people who lived in the countryside were very slow to adopt it and held to the old traditional beliefs. And the reason for that is because, like what we talked about with voodoo, objective reality and your subjective reality kind of influence the way that you see the world and then religion interacts with that. And so like people who live in urban places where lots of different cultures are interacting with each other and races and religious backgrounds, those people, they, they exist in a context of rules, social rules. Mm-hmm. And Christianity is all about how you interact with other people. Whereas the pagan religions 
you know, quote unquote pagan, that just means like what indigenous non-Christian religions, right? Mm -hmm. They are more focused on the way that you interact with nature. And so like this religion that Mad Sweeney has in, as he's like native uh, to Ireland is like a, a religion of the, the Druids um, are in charge of, and they like, worship the trees and worship nature and it's not about people because when you live out on a farm by yourself you're not worried about the way that other people should act you're worried about whether or not this drought is ever going to break or if it's going to flood this year yeah that totally makes sense but for the christians like it's very frustrating for them to come from the cosmopolitan city and go out into the countryside and feel like they're doing the work of god and explain to this dumb farmer that like, hey, you should be nice to every, you should treat others the way that they want to be treated and be like, listen, I'm going to leave out some milk and bread for the fairies. I'm going to plow my land and you're going to get off of it. <laughs> you know, the people in the cities had to adapt to survive together because they all just believed different things. And Christianity was a good way to cope with that. And it really worked. It helped to build an empire. But it made life really difficult for the pagan people who were just trying to cope with nature. And so these two kind of adaptations to the way that you live your life clashed with each other in a way that actually literally became a war, like what we see with Mad Sweeney. Mm -hmm. I just think this episode, just like the episode seven of last season, does a really good job of representing what those pre-Christian faiths were like for people to have at the time. And then the way that it interacts with Christianity in this episode is really well depicted. Yeah, I agree in broad strokes, but also, I mean, I think that description a little bit downplays the extent to which Christian imperialism was brought. I mean, I say this as someone who hasn't actually studied the history in depth, but like, I mean, it wasn't a lot of it. They were fighting the, off this like outside force. It wasn't like the urban people weren't even necessarily like from the same ethnic group that they were, right? Like they were people from different islands coming in as outsiders and like forcing them to abandon their language and like so many aspects of their culture in addition to their religion right oh yeah after constantine like everything changes and it, it gets much closer to the kind of christian colonialism that we know in the modern age okay yeah it's like yeah convert or die really is what it is that marriage between christianity and empire like really poisoned in my opinion christianity for like the rest of its history it's been that has been the central struggle in the christian religion ever since then to get away from that or to embrace it and and every time it does it becomes so much worse for it which we discussed like on our episode crazy for god mm -hmm. yeah so the other thing that we get in this episode that comes from irish myth are the banshees now usually when a banshee shows up there's just one of them also, a banshee doesn't show up when you are going to die. A banshee shows up when someone you know is going to die. So the person who's doing the dying doesn't perceive them, only other people do? Right. 
exact. But in this case, we get three banshees. And I was like, oh, okay. So that might be referencing the goddess Morrigan, who is like a trinity goddess. Um, she has like three aspects to her. Like in this case, they had like a, a, a maiden, a woman, and a crone. So like if you've uh, ever read Macbeth, there's the three witches in that. Mm-hmm. And they are a version of Morrigan. After the Christian... Uh, occupation of Ireland and everybody becomes Catholic. Like it's not okay to worship or think about Morrigan anymore. And so she kind of evolves as a concept into the Banshee, which were like in Irish, like funerals. Mm -hmm. There were actually like people who you would hire for your funeral to like do this thing called keening. Uh, it's like a kind of like a scream or a wail yeah as a way to like send the dead off and this was like an ancient tradition but then became outlawed because keeners were always women it's basically like prostitution yeah you can't like pay a woman to do something because then a woman would have a job and then where would we be as a society if women had jobs? What people think probably happened is there's like this association with death and ravens through Morrigan. There's these women who are professional keeners. You can't pay them. So like people used to like pay them in food and drink to come to the funeral instead. And so they would wander from place to place and they would make this loud screaming sound to like advertise like, yo, I'm a keener. Do you need a keener? (laughs) Um, So that's where the idea of banshees comes from. Interesting. They don't cause death. They just warn you. I definitely felt a little bit like Shadow my first time through the episode because I was like, wait, are they really banshees or are they just mourners? I don't know. They were like, (laughs) (laughs) they did such a good job of blending in. (laughs) Well, that is the thing about uh, banshees that, you might hear it, but nobody else does because they're not there for anybody else. I see. So I'm not going to lie. When I saw that you had written down adaptation as like your heading, uh, Mm -hmm. I assumed you were going to talk about adapting the book to the TV show. (laughs) So I feel like we should talk about that now. (laughs) Uh, Since I thought you were going to bring it up. So I haven't read the book, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how Sweeney meets his demise in the book versus the version that we got here. Oh, okay. Sweeney's only really in two parts of the book. He is at the crocodile bar, just like in the show. And then uh, he shows up in Cairo when Shadow gets there and they get a phone call that like, hey, there's somebody down by the by the bridge. And it's a lot like the opening scene here. It's almost exactly the same as the opening scene except everything in the book takes place in one winter so it's always winter in the book he's like freaking out and he asks shadow where his coin is and he's like i don't have the coin i gave it away and he's like well would that person give it back and he's like i don't think so that just defeats sweeney he gives in to despair he asks shadow for money he says he wants to buy a ticket out of town. Shadow only has a 20 on him. And he says that's enough. And then Shadow goes back to the mortuary. They get another phone call. Hey, go 
we thought we told you to go check out that wino. Now he's dead. And so he goes back. Sweeney's dead. He's just sitting there like frozen solid. And he has a empty whiskey bottle there. And that's what he used the $20 to buy a ticket out of life. And then Shadow takes him back to the mortuary to give him like a pauper's grave. Because he's a John Doe as far as the state's concerned. Which is like a much more pathetic way to meet your end than what we see in the TV show, which is like pretty empowering and badass. Yeah. It's doing very different things. I don't know. Like to me, the TV version is clearly better. Sell me on the book story. (laughs) I, I find this more satisfying. The show version, because it's like, doing multiple things with the entire narrative so far. But I will say that the structure of the novel relies on a series of deaths and funerals. Mm. You can track Shadow's emotional growth and vulnerability through the novel via each of the funerals and how he behaves at each of them. And so in the book, the first one is Laura's funeral. Mm -hmm. This one begins to establish the pattern. It's the second one. And the show has gotten away from that completely because like lots of people have died at this point. We've already seen his mother's funeral and death. Mm -hmm. And that is the last one that we experience in the book. Oh, yeah. Shadow is like the most vulnerable and emotionally available at that point. You know, even though it comes chronologically at the end of the book, it is also like his origin. At Laura's death, he's very closed off. And then at the end of the novel, he is completely raw and open and available. So it's really doing like different things. I see. Yeah. And I guess at least the the TV show did do a good job of of like taking key aspects of the book version and putting them in as kind of like Easter eggs, like the the $20 bill, the getting drunk under a bridge. Yeah. Wednesday eating potato salad. Uh, <laughs> Ivis talking about how stories are more true than the truth. And so that's like a a commentary on the ways that the story is like changing between the book and the TV show that like just because Neil Gaiman wrote it down that way 20 years ago, this the story shifts with with whatever makes the best story in the moment. When you're adapting something, you should do what's best for the adaptation, not what is most consistent with the source material, in my opinion. This is so much richer, I think, than what you get in the book in terms of Sweeney. I think it does flatten shadow a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I'm okay with it because like this is a really good story and I still have the book. Like this doesn't make the book go away. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Well, and also I feel like shadow in general is flatter just because so much of the characterization comes from that like interiority that's really hard to portray on TV where you don't have that like internal dialogue or monologue, Mm -hmm. you know? Even though Ricky Whittle is great at emoting, Shadow is so passive, which is interesting and cool. Like I like that, but it's so hard to try and tell this kind of story that they want to tell. Matt Sweeney is great. (laughs) I'm glad they did this. Like for example, there 
what I really noticed uh, near the end of this episode was that Shadow and Sweeney fight in front of Wednesday exactly like they do in the crocodile bar in the very first episode when we meet Sweeney for the first time. What do you mean? Well, like, it's almost shot for shot the same. Oh, I guess you've probably rewatched season one more recently than I have. I'll have to go back and compare them. For example, there's a point in the first fight where Shadow gets the better of Sweeney and starts punching him in the face, like, over and over again. And Sweeney's kind of, like, laughing. Can you feel the joy rising in your veins like the sap in the springtime? But in this fight, he says... Can you feel the poison? It's him. We're on the same side, Shadow. And then he looks at Wednesday, and he's like, it's him, it's Wednesday. And that makes Shadow even more angry. And it's funny, too, because if you remember that fight, part of the reason that Shadow is fighting with him is because Sweeney is doing those coin tricks and like messing with him. And then this fight ends with the coin trick and that's kind of how he wins. Oh yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I didn't obviously notice that it was like a rematch of the initial fight and thinking about how far both of those characters had come since their initial fight and Mm -hmm. how that was kind of like an interesting checkpoint in the narrative to make you realize, you know, like how much of a journey you've gone on, despite how much everyone's complaining about how nothing happens in the show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's so interesting that even the choreography and the like direction was so carefully constructed to mirror that scene. And it's like a negative contrast at the same time, because like that scene has like this really loud, crazy organ music that's going Mm -hmm. on. And the bar is like so bright. You remember like the teeth are like lights in the crocodile mouth. But this, there's no music. It's just the sound of hitting each other. The room is dark, you know, like the floor is stone and there's this creepy tree in the background. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's completely different, even though like visually the same, almost the exact same choreography is happening. Like all of the context is completely different. And so I just love the choices that were made around that like on a directing level Mm -hmm. and it's so like crunchy and interesting that's awesome there are some like problematics that i noticed in this episode which is about a white guy um you know i did notice that this is all about sweeney kind of unlocking his vulnerability and kind of working through his personal trauma and history and to do that to walk along that journey he uses a gay guy, a woman, and a literal magical Negro. I mean, really two magical Negroes, right? Yeah, two for one. You know, (laughs) you got a woman and a magical Negro there. Yeah. So this is like, it's, I don't know. Like, this is really well done. And it's, um, I don't want to say like, it's it's a bad thing in the episode, but it is the kind of thing that you should notice and, and think about. Yeah. Right, like when we think about what makes these tropes really problematic, because for so long in almost every story, like there had to be a white dude at the center of it and everyone else was relegated to these sidekick roles. Like I can see why it pinged your sense for that, for like, hmm, is everything all right here? 
But, like, given mm-hmm. the broader context of the show and that, like, Salim is on his own journey and, like, Bilquis, I think, is also on her own journey and they all out-survived him, right? Because that's <laughs> the other problematic trope, <laughs> right, is that um, it's always, like, the black person who's expendable and who dies. So at least here it's, like, the white guy <laughs> dies at the end. <laughs> you know, they're only really the side helpers for this episode. Like, they have their own personal journeys that will continue to go on and they'll fulfill outside of this episode where they get to be more of the protagonists. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. we already got Bilquis's backstory and we already got Salim's backstory and I'm excited to see what happens to them going forward. So I totally think that that's something that you, that you should like note and be aware of, but like that's why it doesn't super bother me. No, I agree. You're right. You know, so what did kind of bother me... Honestly, though, is that for a while, it did seem like it was turning into the Mad Sweeney Laura Moon show Mm. when like Shadow is the protagonist of the book. And there were like all these amazing characters of color on the show. But it seemed like we were like really just kind of zeroing in on like the two most interesting white people. And I think for the most part, that's been somewhat corrected. Like, the focus has expanded more. The other characters are getting more focus of the story on, like, their, you know, personal growth and character arcs and stuff. Not only that, but Mad Sweeney's death, the death of the white dude, is used to be a huge pivotal character moment for Shadow, the black guy. Right. Yeah. So that's like... And probably Laura, too, you know? Yeah. And for their relationship. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that makes me feel better about it. This whole thing, like, at the end of it, I was thinking about, like, his whole dead wife thing. And I was like, oh, you know, this kind of changes what dead wife means. Because, like, he had a wife in the past that he kind of remembered and she's dead and gone holy and like, shit sorry i like this is just hitting me right now i did not even think about that <laughs> yeah it was like oh man like every time he called her dead wife he was actually like <gasps> there was something else in his head the whole time that kind of makes their relationship even more fucked up and i kind of like yeah. it more now <laughs> it makes it so that they're both kind of hung up on someone else mm-hmm. and like using each other out of like desperation for connection because they're not getting it from the person who they really want it from Laura because Shadow's creeped out that she's dead uh, and he's busy (laughs) and Sweeney because his wife is dead yeah I love the book but it's like man why didn't those characters ever meet like clearly there was potential there Okay, so I think it's time to wrap up with lowlights and highlights. What was your least favorite part? This is a real nitpick, but I do wish that the madness that Sweeney has in this episode had been more a part of his character in previous episodes because it seems like from the first episode of the first season when we meet Sweeney that they interpret the mad in his name to mean like angry anger management can be like a real mental illness but it's not the same as like what we see in this episode where he can't access his memories and he has a fuzzy grasp of reality and so it's a little bit convenient for what they're doing here with 
melding the different stories and like weaving this tapestry. It's cool, but like it hasn't been set up previous to this that this is an aspect of Sweeney's psyche. How about you? What do you what do you have any nits to pick or Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like having him as a having him as a character where he doesn't quite have his grip on reality would have made the rest of his character are kind of difficult to handle. Oh no, yeah, totally. I like that he's angry. Mm-hmm. Like it's the only thing I can pick is like <laughs> This is a little bit inconsistent for Sweeney's character, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. So in terms of my nitpicking, I, yeah, I was really stumped trying to come up with something. I guess like maybe it could have been better if they had done a clean three beat instead of a messy five-ish beat, but maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Um, What was your favorite part? In Shadow's room the wallpaper in there is like this golden fan pattern. And it kind of looked to me like um, gold coins when he's talking to Sweeney. We're kind of like behind him all around him and also like rising suns. And I was like, oh, that is such a cool choice by the set design team or the director. Sweeney is like surrounded by these gold coins and um, and the, the golden sun, which is like what the gold coin is it's like the power of the sun and every little detail in the episode is like contributing to the overall story and it just felt like a really strong choice i definitely did not notice that i'll have to go back and look i was interrupting uh christina's experience of the episode i was like if you'll notice here it looks like a lot of gold coins and then you see the clock is also a gold coin and she's like i what did he just say (laughs) um what were we talking about Oh, yeah. My Was that your part. favorite thing? <laughs> uh, there's just like so much really good, carefully crafted stuff in this episode. All the different versions of the story and how they like reflect and contradict each other in different combinations. The like foreshadowing of going into the horde with the moon coin um, when Shadow and Sweeney are having that confrontation in the room. Uh, Laura showing up in town right before the final fight. So we know it's, like, not a good luck, bad luck thing. Uh, But if I had to pick, like, just one thing, I think it would be uh, Pablo Schreiber's acting in that opening scene under the bridge. He does this amazing thing where he, like, laughs and then cries all within, like, three seconds or something. And the way he's, he's like, trying to roll a cigarette, which we've seen him do so many times in the show before, and he, like like his hands don't work and it's like you know whenever we see him he always has like a beautiful rolled cigarette behind his ear and like now he can't even do that so much like good acting and direction went into that scene like i said that scene is like straight out of the book and and um i just reread this part of the book today to like you know just refresh my memory and that moment when the cigarette falls apart and the tobacco falls on his skin. It's all from Shadow's perspective. So we don't have this kind of interiority that we get from Sweeney in the TV show. But Shadow thinks that the way he reacts to it is as if there were bugs crawling on his skin. And then we actually see the ants crawling on his skin. And I'm like, oh, man, they even did that. Oh, that's little so Easter cool. Egg. And then made it pay off when he's eating the ants. And I'm like, oh, yeah, man, that's good. Holy shit, so that's good. so good. 
Yeah, the attention to detail is is great. I think the show has like really come into its own at this point. Mm-hmm. I was worried about the second season, but they are doing a great job. Okay, so that's all we've got for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And come join us next week for potentially season two, episode eight, Moon Shadow. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. A little review is all I ask. A little analysis is all I can give. Do you need direction? Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs>